But when I sat back and looked at it and started to notice things, you know, like I said, just noticing stuff about about it, flicking through it, right? And I said, okay, so here's the Brumel setting. That's great. No, it's there. Keep flicking, keep flicking, keep flicking. And then I see the same piece about 35 pages on. And I went, okay, so this must be a mistake because this is the Jerusalem of that Brumel Lamentations. And I just saw that 35 pages. So I check it back and then I go, oh, it's a little bit different. Oh, oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm Will Robin, and this is my podcast, Sound Expertise. You were just hearing my guest on today's show, Lori Strauss, describing a pretty momentous musicological discovery she made a few years back. Diving into a mostly neglected manuscript, she found a version of a piece by the Renaissance composer Antoine Brumel that was way, way longer and way more elaborate than the one previously known to scholars. Strauss, who is research professor of music at the University of Huddersfield and emeritus professor of music at the University of Southampton, went on to record Rumel's Lamentations with her ensemble, Musica Secreta. We've got links to that great recording up on our website, soundexpertise.org. Unto itself, this is kind of a classic example of what musicologists have done since the beginnings of our field. We go digging for lost music in the hopes of bringing old pieces back into the world after centuries of neglect. But the way that process happens and how it is thought through is the subject of this episode. Not just Professor Strauss's discovery of this piece from a somewhat obscure composer, but how one looks at a manuscript from a faraway time and understands its cultural significance. And, you know, it's not just about what it means for us now, having this cool old-slash-new piece to sing from, but what it meant four or five hundred years ago, what the purpose of these manuscripts was to the individuals who, who copied them out, who purchased them in their convents and confraternities, and who ultimately sang out of them. When we find music in old manuscripts, what meaning can and should we make from it? Let's talk about that now with Laurie Strauss on Sound Expertise. So you spend a lot of time immersed in very old manuscripts, uh, trying to kind of figure out what they mean and, and what kind of music can be made about them. I'm wondering if we could just start kind of with what that process is like for you when you start working on kind of like a, a quote unquote new, but in fact, very old manuscript. Like, what are you looking for? What are you trying to do with it? How do you approach these documents when you deal with them for the first time? Oh, man. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you very much for inviting me onto your <laughs> Absolutely, podcast. Yes. I'm so thrilled. Okay. Um, but you know what? I try not to go in with too much of a preconceived idea of what I'm going to find. Um, I mean, to, to a certain extent, when you're sitting in a library and you're thinking, what am I going to call up? Right? You have limited time. You're, you're there. You've kind of rushed across Europe to get into in, in, into the archive or the library, and you've got a limited amount of time. You sit there with a catalog going, okay, I'm going to call this one, this one, and this one. But when they arrive, uh, I try just to 
take it completely at at face value to start with. Um, I mean, particularly if it's a manuscript that nobody's really had a look at for a long time. Um, and you know, I'm kind of I'm kind of late to the manuscript game. I I, I quite happily for you know 20 years spent my time with prints and other kinds of documentary evidence and stuff. So coming to music manuscripts much later in 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 my career, maybe I am I, I'm less you know I I haven't had anyone direct me on how to look at a manuscript, and so I am I'm a lot more. Uh, I, a lot more open-minded than I might have been otherwise. Does that sound? Does that sound? Uh, yeah. Good. But one of the things that kind of preoccupies me when I do look at the manuscript is, is very much what it looks like. You know, I it, when you're faced with with music that that takes time to put together, and you have to put together live. You know, you can't just read it straight off the page and know exactly what it's going to sound like. You can, you can, you've got some kind of clues, but um, what it looks like, it still looks the same as it looked to somebody who was looking at it 500 years ago. Right. So what it looks like and how your eye is drawn to particular parts of the page, what those features are, um, you know, that's what strikes me to start with. Um, and I do approach it very much the way I used to approach prints or still do approach, approach prints. I will take reams of notes of, 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 of its kind of objective qualities. Um, that's something that's really ingrained. So, you know, just, uh, page by page, what the text is, what the clefts are, you know, how it's arranged, all that sort of stuff. Just take as many notes as I can about what it looks like and what it contains so I can get, so I can get a big picture. Um, but then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, dot, dot, dot. Then it comes down to, again, just looking at it and, and see, see, seeing if I can kind of, experience something of opening that page um in a in a totally context free way because uh a lot of the manuscripts that I look at don't have attributions sometimes it's even you have to look closely to 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 work out where a piece starts and 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 ends and so by by taking it out of out of kind of the musicological context I put it in, then I, I I try I hope to to kind of see things that I wouldn't that I don't see when I'm looking at it as a musicologist. Right, because I mean, these manuscripts from you know four or five hundred years ago, you know, it's not like the people who created them were creating them exclusively to root through to find just the music, right? Like there's there's all this other stuff in it. So like to just just find the pieces of music to extract from them misses a lot of what else is is important to the to the people who actually created it and used oh, it. Right. Oh sure. You know, some manuscripts do have indexes um that are compiled after the fact or, or or whatever but yeah i mean so many of them are are in themselves compilations they won't necessarily have been copied all at once or all by the same person 
Um, and so your empathy, I mean, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about whether empathy is a, is a goal for musicologists. <laughs> so your empathy is, has got to, has got to start with, uh, with the people who handled the manuscript whilst it was a working document, the people who owned it, um, and perhaps even the copyist who inherits it, copying from another person or the person who's binding together bits of other bits of manuscript, you know, they're, they're all the people who've handled that book uh, are, are going to have come at it from a, from a different perspective and almost none of them will have been from the kind of musicological or, or, or kind of, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a study perspective. Right, Although I would, right. you know, there are, of course, of course, there's exception to every rule. There are there are books that are clearly compiled as archival records of what goes on in a particular institution. So, you know, their 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 whole uh, repertoire is bound up in, a, in 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 a lot of books. But but the 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 kind of lone manuscript that belonged to some unknown organization somewhere else that's you know that's got a that's got a different feel to it altogether yeah i mean it might be helpful maybe let's talk a little bit about one of the collections you've been working on recently okay. um you know i was reading some of your work on a collection that's nicknamed pm as well as another nicknamed <laughs> uh Bifoli Sostenye, which sounds yeah. uh, like a delicious dish. Um, <laughs> I, if either yeah. of those you want to talk a little bit about kind of how you okay. came to it and yeah Okay, those two manuscripts are copied by the same person, and they are unusual to me in that they are they they appear to have both been copied. Though they're copied within a year of each other, and each of them uh, were copied from the beginning to the end, um, and they have some kind of some they betray a little bit of kind of organizational thought. At least on term, in, in terms of the the, the copyist, um, but they are they're both copied in Florence in the middle of the 16th century uh, by someone that we know as Antonio Moro, although his name only appears on one of those manuscripts as Antonius Morus. Um, so th that's a Latinization of his name. What his real last name was. Who knows? Um, it could have been Moro. It could have been something like, uh, it, it, well, I got all sorts of ideas about that, but we won't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, these two these two manuscripts are, are are copied by the same guy within a year of each other, and they're copied for two completely different kinds of organizations. The Bifoli Sostegni manuscript, and I call it that because of the names of the nuns that are on the bindings of the manuscript. They've actually got their names embossed on the bindings. Oh, wow. And uh, that was copied for these two nuns uh, in what I now know to have been a kind of small and not very prestigious convent on the outskirts of, of, of Florence. Um, and the PM manuscript, and I call it that because the only way that we can, the only identification we have on the manuscript of who might have owned it is a, uh, a coat of arms at the beginning with the initials PM on the oh, coat of arms. And there are little 
in the in the decorations and the letters um, in in the manuscript, you see those initials PM crop up quite a lot, um, but they don't correspond to anyone. Uh, any identifiable character in Florence or 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 in Rome or or anywhere where it might have been copied. So we just know it as PM. The one thing I would that I posit about this manuscript is that it was copied for a male confraternity. There is this kind of cryptic inscription um, on one of the pages that says uh, something like um, where. Oh, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to look this up. The, the, okay. Look <laughs> <laughs> hey, Wait. Hey, hang on here. Hang on. No worries. Oh yeah. Here we go. Here okay. we go. So on one of the pages in the PM manuscript, there's this motto: um, "In Trinitate manet canentibus favet," which translates okay. as "He who remains or actually spends the night in the Trinity favors singers." Now there was a confraternity in Florence um, in, from the end of the 15th century to in, right into the 17th century. In fact. Uh, called the Buca di San Paolo, um, or also it had a, a more kind of formal title of uh, the Confraternity of um, of, of San Paolo, um, and it was actually a really prestigious confraternity. Um, the Medici, for generations, were members of this confraternity, and they had uh, a youth. Youth section, <laughs> okay, for that 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 you know Leo the Tenth, Giovanni de Medici belonged to this youth section in, in oh, wow. when when he was a kid, and Lorenzo de Medici uh, wrote a play for the youth confraternity as well. So you know it's this really well connected group. Um, sadly, all of the documents pertaining, or almost all the documents pertaining to this confraternity, disappeared. Now there was a huge flood in Florence in 1557. And a lot of the documentation for the entire city uh, just, I mean, literally what was, was washed away. Uh, and worse still, in, in 1966, there was another huge flood in Florence, and that uh, damaged some of the archives in the Archivio di Stato. So, you know, the documentation of 16th century Florence is really patchy. Um, and so we don't know who precisely was member of this confraternity at that time. We don't have very many records about it. But my um, my sense is that this, this motto, in Trinitate Manet Canentibus Fabit, refers to the fact that they would stay overnight in their church of Trinita Vecchia, uh, especially on a Friday night, they would have their 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 late night uh, flagellation ceremonies. <laughs> no flagellation, flagellation, yeah, seriously. So they would get together um, and whip themselves. Mm-hmm. They they sure would, and then <laughs> they would, then they'd sleep in their dormitories. They they okay. you know, they change out of their their day clothes, and they'd go and they would do their their stuff, and they would sleep in the dormitory over overnight and Friday night. And then get up on Saturday morning, have a little bit of breakfast, put on their street clothes again, and go out in 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 into the world. Now, you know, this sounds really odd, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, super odd. Um, 
But the context of these confraternities, these fraudulent uh, confraternities, is, is that they are, Florence is this very special city. Um, it grows, you know, it's a republic, uh, and then the Medici turn it into something that is not so much of a republic, and eventually the Medici become dukes. But, you know, there's this sense of, of civic responsibility in Florence that stays there for a really, really long time. And these confraternities, uh, when they arise in the 14th and 15th centuries, they are there to humble the rulers of the uh, of the city. That you know, they they go there, and and the people in these confraternities can be the Medici. They can be these really really rich families, but they can also be carpenters and wine sellers and you know wool merchants or or, or whatever. They're not necessarily going to be the top echelons, but they're all rubbing in together, and uh, and the purpose of their of their worship is to keep them humble. So, in that context, here is this book of uh, this this book PM, which is just this mass. I mean, it's 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 big. It's a big, stonking, great big collection of lamentation settings, and the importance of of the lamentations to Florentine confraternities is something that that lots of people have discussed difficult to kind of get really to the core of it like i say there's this lack of documentation about practice in the 16th century but it, it's it's really part of that kind of humbling uh keeping close to your roots uh an austere kind of religiosity that that hangs over in florence uh, right the way through the centuries. So we have this big collection of lamentation settings. One of them has a name on it, but you know we're talking about three hundred pages of, of music here. And so, were these sung by members of the confraternity on these Friday night self-flagellation things, or is that not yet? I yeah. think that they are collect. They would have probably not necessarily been sung right the way through the year, but certainly, you know, in the Easter season and very definitely in, during Holy Week, there, there is some documentation left that shows that this confraternity uh, employed singers to come and, uh, and and perform this, uh, perform lamentations. At the, they would have a feast on on Thursday to, to which they would invite the poor members of the community and they would feed them. And then they would have some kind of uh, a kind of spiritual recreation, which uh, may have involved the the singing of of lamentations settings. Um, so that's something that they would do specifically on Maundy Thursday, on the Thursday of Holy Week. Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they these these settings could have been part of their their devotions, you know, not necessarily all the way through the year, but certainly through a portion uh, of the year. Um, and it looks like it was all kind of collected together. It may have been collected together because it was copied right after this big flood. It may have been an attempt to kind of pull together all of the kind of random bits of music that are left over uh, that didn't get damaged or may have been partially damaged and everything is kind of put into into a book. So there may have been this kind of archiving or, or, or collecting thing that comes as part of that. That, that manuscript. It's not an unknown manuscript. People have looked at this book uh, lots of times before, but they've been looking for pieces that they know, right? So 
getting back to this this idea about attribution and you know is is it what are we doing when we are looking for attributions in manuscripts we're trying to pin them down we're trying to pin them down in some kind of historical context in some kind of musicological context um, and that's just not a priority for the people who are putting it together sadly for us as musicologists you know this is what we want right. to do so like so this, we we want to find out who the author is so then we can say well it's by Josquin so we can compare it to other yeah. Josquin and we can perform it yeah. on a Josquin concert and sell it on a Josquin yep. CD Yep, and yep, that's yep, yep. nothing that has nothing to do with what people were doing with it in the mid 1500s. Well, you know, the, the idea of the idea of Jascan, the idea of the great composer is something that, that seems to be, you know, it, it's certainly building uh, it, at the beginning of the, the, the 16th century. You know, there's this really often uh, quoted passage in uh, Castiglione about uh, the, 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 the Duchess getting her singers to sing a motet and, you the company thinks it's not all that. Then she tells them it's by Shoska and they go, oh, right, it's by Shoska. That's, that's so cool. That's um, and the printing, you know, the, the print culture is, starts to build big names. So uh, when the Venetian printing industry starts to really kind of get going with, uh, with, with printing music that's affordable, um, there's kind of a program uh, a building on big names. So Scotto brings out collected editions of Gombert and Morales, you know, and, you know, the, he's kind of building personalities. So we can look at those pieces so we can go, oh, right, we can just study this particular composer. Um, but that's not so much of a not so much of a a, a a preoccupation of the person who is either compiling the manuscript or or, or using it. They're more interested in how they're going to use that particular piece of music. You know, its function seems to be more important or as important as the person who, who's written it. I'm not saying that there aren't manuscripts with ascriptions. There are, there are. But when you come across a manuscript that has none, then it can't have been very important to the person paying for the manuscript or the person compiling the manuscript. You right. know, it's just not an important thing. But, okay, so I've said all of that. And then the reason it's a big deal to me is that I find this huge piece um, that, uh, that we can attribute to Brumel because it's attributed to Brumel in another contemporary manuscript in Florence, but only two little teeny tiny bits of it were attributed to Brumel and appear in that manuscript. And this other manuscript, which sits, you know, on the same shelf, uh, there, those two little bits appear in it, but they appear in the context of this of this massive work. And because it didn't have Brumel's name on it, nobody seemed to be particularly interested in the fact that it was just sitting there. And like I said, it's not a manuscript that hasn't been looked at by right, musicologists right. over the decades. I mean, it appears in loads of lamentations, you know, scholarship on lamentations, but the full extent of, the, of, of that set was just not identified. I can't explain it. But when I sat back and looked at it, and started to notice things, you know, like I said, just noticing stuff about, about it. So flicking through it, right? And I said, so, okay, so here's the Brumel setting. That's great. No, it's there. Keep flicking, keep flicking, keep flicking. And then I see 
the same piece about 35 pages on. And I went, okay, so this must be a mistake because this is the Jerusalem of that Bramel Lamentations. And I just saw that 35 pages. So I check it back and then I go, oh, it's a little bit different. Oh. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you just you just find a massive piece of music, or rather you find what was supposed to be a short piece of music. You realize it's a massive piece of music in yeah. the script. Yeah. 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 And and it was it was only because I was flicking through it page by page, documenting what I saw on the page. And it was just, you know, it was just that moment of kind of looking, going, hang on. No, wait. <laughs> Did he copy it twice? What did he do? Did he copy this piece twice? And then I realized, no, he hadn't copied the piece twice. It was just, and then once you start to kind of put it together and you realize that it's just this long, continuous piece, and then seeing that this kind of, it's a refrain and seeing that there's another refrain that's kind of sandwiched in there and it just got bigger and bigger. And 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 so from the end point that I'd got to, and then extending it back and I realized, oh my gosh, this is huge. This is this is insane. <laughs> How has nobody seen this before? Um, so yeah, I mean, that it's approaching a manuscript with an open mind um, and without a whole lot of preconceived ideas about what I was going to find because I'm still pretty new to manuscripts. Right. That's what I that that's what was there. And you know, the Biffley Sustaini manuscript also has a piece in it that is not attributed in the manuscript, which is attributed to Chasquin elsewhere. And this, you know, the, and the manuscript doesn't even appear in the new Chasquin edition, that the fact that it's there, because it's this kind of fairly innocuous looking manuscript that nobody can put a pinpoint on and say it must be important because there aren't any attributions. And if there's no attributions, it just looks like a manuscript of a bunch of, you know, just a bunch of, of repertoire that's, rotting away in a Belgian library. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing that you've done with this manuscript, these manuscripts is obviously find this amazing piece and, and perform it. But then the other thing is to, you know, I, you've been writing a little bit about trying not to necessarily leap immediately to identify who wrote this music. So can you talk a little bit about how you're conceptualizing anonymity and authorship right now and how you're thinking about this idea of looking at anonymous music and kind of rethinking what anonymous music is? Yeah, so I am really fascinated by why music is is anonymous. You know, like I said, it's it's a it, it's a growing trend in the 16th century to want to, to to have attributions. But in a manuscript, it's kind of coming from a different it's coming from a different place. It's it's almost like the the music who wrote the music doesn't really matter. It's what the music is about. Um, and the only way you get to know anything about the about anonymous music is to perform it, is to transcribe it and perform it, because you can't say anything about its style, you can't say anything about its affect um, without doing the work of bringing it to life through 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 singing uh, and playing and. You know, that's that's almost like that's that's doing the work of 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 description. That's doing a, a really deep reading, um, and almost like an, an interpretation. And 
I found an essay that, that I, I now know is, was quite controversial when it came out uh, called Close But Not Deep by a literary um, scholar called Heather Love. And she looks at these different tiers of, uh, of, of readings that, that Close But Not Deep is, uh, is trying to kind of get to the, the meaning of, uh, of a text without, without doing the, 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 the dive that, that, that situates it somewhere. What she says is that she suggests that close but not deep reading registers the losses of history rather than repairing them and lets ghosts be ghosts. And I love that idea that we just say, okay, we've lost the attribution from this music. We don't know who wrote it, but what we do, you know, what do we, what do we know about it? What can we know about it? We can know uh, what time of year it was sung. Um, if we if we try and find a little bit of historical context around it, we can kind of understand a bit about what ensemble, what kind of ensemble it was uh, it was performed by. I try to steer clear of composer intention because that's uh, you know that is just a huge can of worms. Sure. Um, especially if you don't know who the composer is. <laughs> especially if you don't know who the composer is. Rather than insisting on finding a source in order to create value for this music, um, we need to we need to know what it sounds like, and we need to try and find a context in which it can be, in which it can be valued. Right. That's the big sixty-four thousand dollar question for the ensemble director who is trying to get gigs and get audiences to their concerts because believe me it's 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 hard enough i mean we all know it's hard to get audiences to classical music concerts anyway right um and if we're not singing beethoven oh okay so what are we doing what are, oh, we better sing some palestrina or we better sing we got to give them a name so that they know what they're coming to hear and when you say i'm going to do a concert of convent music they're like oh, thanks i think i'll stay at home and watch cheers right <laughs> so so you so you have to find a way of of finding a context for that that an audience can also value. Um, I'm perfectly happy to just just glory in the sound of of equal voice polyphony. It abs it's so exciting. It's just completely knocks my socks off. The way it, it you know you can't avoid dissonance. You can't avoid weird things happening in equal voice polyphony because that's the nature of the beast. Um, but getting an audience to value it, you have to find another thing to hang it on. And so if you think that attribution has got kind of problems with ethics or, 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 uh, or empathy, you still have to find a way to reach across, reach across the aisle to the audience. So I tend to want to tell stories and tell stories about the music. So the, the, the Brumel, you know, even if I didn't have that attribution on there, the story of Good Friday and the, the emotional impact of the music is good enough, I think, to, to be able to kind of create a context for an audience. And by putting it in the context of this weird confraternity, that also helps me attract people to, to want to know more about the music. 
the Bifali Sustaini manuscript is harder, or at least it was harder until uh, about this time last year when I went to Florence and found out the kind of knock your socks off uh, element <laughs> of the manuscript. So originally, I'd narrowed it down to two convents in Florence. I knew it was Florentine because of the names of the uh, the names of the uh, the nuns. And in fact, uh, a, a musicologist called Lucia Boscolo had worked on this manuscript some time ago. Um, and even before that, the cataloger in 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 Belgium, because uh, it's now in a in the library of the Royal Conservatory in, in Brussels, had identified it as being a Florentine manuscript. And so, you know, we know that about it. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, look, there's a bunch of Psalms for the apostles at the front. It's probably from a convent dedicated to an apostle. And there's a whole order, uh, a whole Feast of St. Clair, the whole of the office for St. Clair is, is in this book. So I thought, okay, so it's an, it's a convent that's dedicated to an apostle, a Clarissan convent that's dedicated to an apostle somewhere in Florence. There's two of those. Um, one is called San Jacopo in Via Gabellina, and it was a really rich convent. Uh, we know it had a choir gallery, and it's situated in an area where there are lots of very active musical convents in Florence. Um, and the other one is a little teeny con convent out on the outskirts of Florence called San Matteo in Arcetri. So I thought, okay, which one is it going to be? It's, it's, it's a nice-looking manuscript. It has, it has colored uh, illumination. I bet it belongs to San Jacopo. Um, so I, I kind of spin the story about San Jacopo. It's quite an interesting place because it was completely inundated in this, in this, uh, in this flood, and uh, you know the records say that like the entire library, you could just see it kind of floating on the on the river on on the river waters. And when you go to the to what's left of the convent in Florence, the the doorway to the church shows you know there's this. There's this indication of the level of the flood of 1557, which is, you know, 20 feet, 30 feet in the air. It's it's enormous. It's huge. So this is a good story. And I thought, well, yeah, it makes sense that that that, you know, like any of those uh those institutions in Florence, you would want to preserve what what you had left. You know, if you had water-damaged music, you would probably get it all copied into a manuscript so that you carry on doing what you're doing. And it also had this miraculous grain-saving crucifix, which is just great. You know, the crucifix jammed itself up against the, the grain store in the flood. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so the the miraculous grain-saving crucifix became a, an object of pilgrimage for two centuries in oh Florence. God. And again, you know, you'd think these nuns need music for that kind of stuff. So it all fit. And I told this story and it was great and people loved it, particularly the miraculous grain-saving crucifix. And then last February, I found out I was wrong. <laughs> okay. So yeah. on New Year's Eve... 2019, I just said, I'm going for it. I have to get to Florence. I got to know, got to be able to go back into the archive and I'm going to nail this. I'm going to find the document that shows me that this convent, you know, that this manuscript belongs to San Jacopo. And I take the train and I get very cold and I'm in Florence, miserable end of January, beginning of February. And I spend a week looking at 
the archives of San Jacopo because they 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 still exist. Some of them, not very much from the 16th century because flood. And I find nothing. I find nothing. I find all sorts of other interesting stuff, but nothing about this man. Nothing. 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 And I'm going, all right. Okay. So on my last day, I go to the catalog and I order up the one document from the other convent that exists from the 16th century. And yeah, within two minutes of arriving at the, at my desk, I find the two nuns. Wow. The, the you know, uh, Agnoletta Bifoli and Clemencio Sostegni. They're both in this book, the day that, you know, the, the, the years that they, that they joined the monastery, how much their parents paid for their dowries, everything. I'm like, okay, because this, this convent, San Mateo in Archetri, became extremely famous about 20 years ago when Dava Sobel published her book, uh, Galileo's Daughter. Because oh. the convent was where Suor Maria Celeste Galilei spent her, you know, the 35 years of her of her life, or you know, 20 of the 35 years of her life, because she joined when she was a teenager. And uh, so it is extremely high profile in, uh, in, in, in certain circles. 20 years ago, there was a documentary made. Um, and a lot of uh, a lot of attention paid to the um, to the correspondence that she had with her father. A lot of which is 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 about his trial and and everything. But what we what we you know what Davisabel was not so interested in about the Galileis, and what we as musicologists know about the Galileis is that they were all musicians. That uh, Galileo Galilei's dad, Vincenzo Galilei, is a very uh, you know, a very right? Common, yeah, he was in the early opera uh, scene, and yeah, 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 yeah. He's he, he's a theorist and a composer, and he writes this big treatise about the lute. And uh, Galileo's son was a musician, and and so you know they are this really really musical family. And Maria Celeste actually taught. She was she was given the job of teaching the the novices to sing plain chant and to conducting the choir in later on in her life. Uh, and she says to her dad, you know, I'm going to have to brush up on my Latin because I'm not so great at that. And this manuscript, this Bifoli Sustainian manuscript, it's, it's only 50 years off. And it would have stayed, I'm sure, with the convent. It has no value to anyone outside the convent. So it's very possible that Galileo's daughter used this manuscript. She, When she asked her father for music, which she did from time to time, she asked for things like organ richer cars. There were three organists at the convent, so we know that it was, it was really quite active musically, but she doesn't ask her dad for motets because there's an entire year's worth of repertoire just sitting in, in this manuscript. It's, you know, I don't have, I don't have the kind of smoking gun to say that she used this manuscript or that she knew this music, but it's uh, you know it to me it just it just seemed like this kind of thunderclap. I was trying not to go for San Mateo and Archetri because I got a bit of flack uh, three or four years ago when I pinned 
the music, the materna lingua music to uh, Leonora Deste. You know, I had, I had uh, dudes going, oh, you're only saying that because you want to you want to jump on the Borgia bandwagon. Right? <laughs> I spent nine years refining that argument so that nobody would say, oh, you just wanted to get on the bandwagon and you get on the Borgia bandwagon, right? You know, it took me a long time to come clean with that because I knew that that's what was going to be said. So, I didn't want to know that this manuscript belonged to Galileo's daughter's conduct. You created an entirely different story <laughs> the first time around. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because I really did not want to go down. You know, I thought lightning doesn't strike twice. We're not going to, it's not going to happen. And yeah, of course. So there I am. So what do you do when you have gone on record, when you've, when you've produced liner notes, you've done an entire tour, you've done radio interviews, all of that stuff presented at AMS. No, <laughs> you have to do your papers. apology tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That that I've 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 gone. I haven't actually published in a journal journal saying that this is where I thought it was from. But but I've done an awful lot of of, of putting that story out there. And so uh, so I've got I've got to kind of come to terms with the fact that I've I've done that and and be honest as a musicologist and say no wait I got it wrong I told those stories those stories are plausible but now I found that they are incorrect and it kind of highlights to me that what we do as musicologists is that we we do tell stories right and especially as you get further back uh, and and the documentation gets more and more sparse. You still have to tell stories. People tell stories about Jaskin. People tell stories about Brumel because there are whole decades of their lives that are just gone from the record. So you have to kind of construct some kind of plausible thing. You do that in the close but not deep reading, don't you? You try and pin things on a map. And I was trying to pin things on the map, trying to find a story that would bring people in to listen to this music because the music is stunning. Right. Stunning, stunning music. Um, and the more we do, the more we go, oh, God, this is, this is amazing. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I have, to, I have to put my hands up and say I got the story wrong, but here's the story I'm going to tell you now, and it's a doozy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thank you so much for telling me that story. Uh, this was a really fascinating conversation and I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to me. It's been so much fun. Many thanks to Lori Strauss for that fascinating interview. She is research professor of music at the University of Huddersfield and emeritus professor of music at the University of Southampton. You can check out links to her writing and recordings with our Ensemble Musica Secreta over at our website, soundexpertise.org, and you can follow me on Twitter at Seated Ovation. If you like the sound of our show, please check out the work of our amazing producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. I'm also grateful to Andrew Del Antonio for transcribing all our episodes to make them more accessible. Those transcripts are up on our website. One more thing. If you're a fan of the podcast, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice, or give us a plug on your social media platform of choice. Um, it really gives us an extra boost that can help us reach some new listeners. Finally, I'm super excited about our guest and topic for next week, Amani Danielle Mosley, discussing Benjamin Britten's operas and British identity. See you then. <laughs>